What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by my good friend, Deerpoint Macro. So Deerpoint and I have gone way back. He was the very first guest on the Sunday Scary Stock Talk Podcast, which has now transformed into the Macro Insights Podcast. I don't know what I was thinking with that long-ass name before, but hey, we're here now. I'm living, I'm learning. But even in that episode... Uh, the audio on my end was messed up. So Deer Points was fine, but mine was not great. So this is the first, I guess, uh, conversation that you can hear really both sides outside of uh, Twitter spaces with Deer Point and I. We go over meeting each other in person, just kind of, you know, we hung out, had a couple beers at the Loose Moose and some other places. Uh, so we kind of talk a little bit about that. But we also talk about, you know, the macro uh macro economy, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the great stuff that Deerpoint always talks about, the cross-currency basis swaps, all that kind of stuff. So be sure to tune in for another action-packed episode. And if you're listening on audio, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get podcasts to help grow the show and give it a five-star rating. But as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice. Everything you hear in this podcast should not be taken as financial advice. It is strictly the opinion of Deer and myself. Now, Let's get into the episode. What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm here with my good friend, Deerpoint Macro. We're going to talk about everything from the Fed, Canada, all this other kind of stuff. If you've heard him on Twitter spaces, you know about the cross-currency basis swap, so I'm sure we'll dive into that as well. But before we get started, big shout out to my sponsors, PlebLab. So if you're in Austin, you need to check out Pleb Lab. They're right off of 6th Street. They're the best hacking space in the business. They got a lot of events going on. Uh, they got the Fresh Bites Market on July 1st. So if you're a vendor or something like that, too, still looking, they still have open spaces, I believe. So be sure to check them out. And if you're not in Austin and you're thinking of going there at some point in time or you want to get access to their Slack channel, talk with some of the best minds in the business you can get their Nomad Pass. Their Nomad Pass is $100 a month. You get access to their Slack channel, all their private events uh, via YouTube, and you can go to them when, when you're in town, and you get access to the facility whenever you're in town. So be sure to check them out there and get yourself a Nomad Pass. And if you're going to BitBlock Boom, use promo code GREENCANDLE, 10% off of that ticket, and PlebLab's going to be having a lot of events. Also, big shout out to Idaho Armored Vaults, Bob and team at goldsilvervault.com, the best place where you can get precious metals. They have extensive amounts of liquidity. Uh, they're certified and they have the lowest margins that you could possibly get when it comes to buying and selling uh, the precious metals market in the United States. So if you're looking to get in there, why not check out Bob and team at goldsilvervault.com, shoot them a message and tell them Green Candle sent you. All right, enough of me blabbing on. I got to get my good friend Deer Point Macro up on stage. Deer, how you doing, man? This feels weird talking to a deer, but how are you? I'm doing well, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So uh, for those who don't know you, maybe didn't even hear the first episode. I mean, you were like the first guest I think I had. And at that time, it was the Sunday Scaries uh, Stock Talk Pod, so a mouthful. But uh, yeah, first, a second, I guess, appearance on, on the show. So uh you know, how are you doing? And uh, reintroduce yourself for those who don't know you. Yeah, so um, I'm a deer point macro. I am a deer that can uh, that has the ability to be able to speak. Um, but in all honesty, no, I'm just a, a big macro enthusiast. Um, I work for a bank up in Canada. I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Brandon last week. Um, had some, uh, some fun and interesting times. So um you know, it's, it's good to be back. Um, you know, I feel honored, you know, I've been, uh, obviously we've been kind of together for, for a long period of time now. Um, I guess what it's almost been, uh, two years at this point. Yeah. I think we've been interacting on uh, two years, like right when Twitter spaces started, I think we were, uh, kind of interacting. You were like one of the first people that, uh, came into the Tuesday night spaces and, uh, yeah, man, I mean, you just blown up on the scene. So, um, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of leave, I guess, well, maybe we'll, we'll leave for our story a little bit towards the end or something like that, but I want to jump right into it. Right. So, I mean, you alluded to it. I was in Toronto, um, not too long ago and, uh, we hung out a little bit, but it was kind of an interesting time while I was up there. 
Uh, Canada decide to re-raise interest rates because they previously paused in their last, I don't know what their equivalent is of the Fed. And uh, the Fed in the United States decided to pause, but it's seemingly like they're going to raise on the next uh, meeting. So overall, uh, give us, I guess, your lowdown on the uh, the overall macro state of, uh, I guess, both Canada and the United States, kind of uh, what you're feeling of where they're at. Yeah, so I guess uh, we'll start with Canada first. Um, Canada is an interesting case uh, in comparison to the United States um, because Canada never went through a deleveraging cycle. Um, so if you go back to kind of let's really start at the beginning of the the GFC, um, you know, Canada um, was obviously at the household level extremely indebted um, and once you kind of had the the great financial crisis, Canada just kind of stagnated in terms of uh, household debt to GDP, um, and since then has been on this this rolling trend upwards, where I believe now they're at like 102 or 103 percent household debt to GDP, whereas the United States went through a deleveraging cycle uh, throughout the great financial crisis, which really cleaned up household balance sheets. The reason that this is significant is Canada's different than the United States um, in a lot of ways. <clears throat> One being, if you look at a mortgage, for example, in the United States, you can get a 30-year fixed. Um, and like for people who don't know, I'm, I'm actually uh, for like an American, I'm just working in Canada. And so when I talk with Americans about this, they're, they're always like, wait, what do you mean? Because when you look at Canada, yes, you have a 25 or 30 year amortization, but you only have a five year fixed or a five year variable. Um, you can get 10 year fixeds, but again, that's extremely uncommon. So when you're looking at these variable rate mortgages, essentially somebody on a five year fixed who got a mortgage, let's say in 2017 at you know 3%, is now going to have to refinance at 7%, or, or not really refinance, but they'll have to roll the mortgage at 7%. Um, and so you're talking about a huge increase in debt servicing, right? Um, you know, I've heard stories of people whose mortgage payments have already gone up two to $3,000, right? And who really budgets for that? Um, so, you know, when we're kind of looking at Canada, Canada really has to thread the needle uh, carefully here. Um, and on my uh, most recent pages, I've been kind of focusing on this. I, I put some charts out uh, yesterday um, looking at total debt obligations uh, within Canadian households as a percentage of disposable income, and it's almost gone parabolic. And now you're starting to see, obviously, rise in solvencies on a year-over-year -year basis, all by, you know, off a very low base uh, because, you know, the pandemic, you know, there is a lot of kind of support programs in. Um, but that's really where we are, um, at least looking at the Canadian context, where if they don't want this whole thing to implode on themselves, they're going to really have to be extremely careful in setting forward guidance um, for interest rate policy, um, just because of so much of that debt essentially being variable. Um, you know, just already the increase in debt servicing cost has been absolutely massive. Um, that's a little bit different than the United States, where households are not as indebted. I think household debt to GDP, um, maybe 70 some odd percent, 75. I don't have the number in front of me somewhere in there, but significantly lower than Canada. And, you know, that kind of gives the Fed the ability um, to be able to continue to kind of raise rates um, because you haven't started to see um, pressure on the U.S. household like you have on the Canadian household. Yeah, and I mean, that that is basically, I think, that the biggest cog when it comes to, uh, you know, the differences between Canada and the United States is just that variable rate mortgage, um, you know, but we're also seeing, like, in the United States, which I think is interesting, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, I guess, affordability is what I'll call it, uh, movements in housing. Uh, I know, you know, like housing is just a small cog in it, 
But, um, you know, we're seeing things where where some places are trying to offer, you know, 0% down uh, outside of just a normal uh, VA loan. Um, and that, that uh, you know, there, there's talks of changing the 30-year fixed to a 40-year fixed because, you know, there's worries that the younger generation can't afford a home with all this, uh, you know, massive amounts of inflation that's kind of gone in these hard assets. But when it comes down to it, you know, I think it's like, I don't have the exact number, so I'm not 100% sure on this, but I know it's like over half of the entire mortgage. And I want to say it's even even closer to like 60 or 70% of the mortgages are under 3% right now in the United States. So, you know, down here, we, we basically have a lot of people that are going to, you know, are in, a, in their forever home or going to essentially die in this home until, or, uh, you know, live in it long enough to get enough appreciation where they can, you know, buy a little bit nicer of a home or something like that. But they're essentially locked in at a very, very cheap rate. Whereas, you know, I think like you like you pointed out, the biggest difference is, you know, just that variable rate where, you know, after five, 10 years, wherever that arm gives up, the the way that the Fed is, or I guess Canada's version of the Fed is raising interest rates, that's just going to change dramatically on the on the monthly payment scale. So um, I, I, I guess let's dive into the differences then in the United States, right? I mean, we had Powell just pause, but it seems like it was kind of a, a pause and everything that's come out since that is essentially preparing us for another rate hike, it seems in July. So, um, you know, where do you think the United States kind of is? And, uh, you know, I guess, where do you think it's going? Yeah, I mean, on, on this aspect, obviously, I've, I've really kind of missed the ball. I, I mean, for me, I thought that the Fed should have started cutting um, much earlier. Um, obviously, that actually hasn't happened yet, as everybody knows. Um, I mean, my whole reason for believing that was essentially, um, you know, liquidity events, which I would argue that we did get um, in the, you know, issues within the U.S. banking sector. But broadly speaking, you know, most of that has kind of been um, <clears throat> kind of pasted over, right? Um, so I, I do think that, you know, the Fed could continue to, to move higher here. Um, how much higher is is really the question. Um, because when, when I'm looking at the data, I, I just, I don't see the need for them to continue to hike rates. Um, and the reason that I say that is if you look at where we are, um, you know, the PPI, which is the producer price index, um, last year around this time, it was 11.3%, I believe, uh, as of today on a year-over-year -year basis, it's 1.1%. That index is now 60% services. <clears throat> um, and we're seeing a lot of deflation through freight and shipping costs. Um, and so once you start to kind of look at these metrics and you start to back things out, you realize that I, I do think that the job has been accomplished, but because the Fed is looking at lagging data and they're not looking at everything in its entirety, um, they're kind of glancing over a lot of things. So just like if we look at, you know, core or headline, right? 30 to 40, 30% uh, of headline, 40% of core is OER, right? The owner's equivalent rent. Um, we know that one, this is a flawed metric because it's, it's a survey. Um, and obviously when you're calling homeowners, asking them how much will you rent your house out, um, they're always going to give you top dollar, right? Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the market, you know, the going market rate. Um, and if we actually look at real-time market rates, we know that they're actually deflating. So people who are now moving into apartments or condos or, or new rental units are actually paying less than they were last year. That hasn't really, f like... Uh, been pulled through into the data. So, you know, when the Fed is starting to look at these things, we have to realize that a lot of this is like, you know, inputted um, uh, guesswork, right? A at least for the CPI and the core. And, you know, even Greenspan used to say um, CPI is a useless metric. Um, the reason that I like the PPI is because where does pricing come from, right? In, in theory, it comes from the producer. Right. So if the producer has higher input costs um, or, you know, has to pay higher wages or has to pay higher transportation costs, they're going to pass that on to the consumer. Right. Um, they're not going to eat 
most of that themselves, willing that the consumer is, is willing to pay that. Um, and, you know, a great example of this is David Rosenberg, who's in a, a used to be at the economist at Merrill, but he's now um, uh, working uh, for his own firm here in Toronto. He actually said that if you, uh, you know, look at the amount of price increases because of fiscal and monetary tailwind throughout the pandemic, the, um, you know, companies were able to pass four years of price increases into a single year. Um, so, you know, they had this massive amount of pricing power that they could pass on to the consumer because the consumer was getting money from the government. And that kind of allowed them to continue normal consumption patterns. Um, so, I mean, I think that once we start to look at things like that, obviously that's all gone, right? That tailwind is, is out of the way. So where, do, what do we really like, where do we go from here? Um, and so I think that that's why when you look at things like Walmart, when you look at things like, when you look at things like, you know, um, Costco's, et cetera, you know, um, there's elasticity of demand there, right? So they, when, when things become, you know, too expensive uh, relative to the ability of consumers to be able to pay for that, they can lower price to spur demand, um, right? But that lower price is obviously disinflationary, deflationary. So now that they're saving all of this money, um, if consumption does start to kind of um, slow, they have the ability to come in and actually lower prices. That's much different than things, you know, like gas stations, right? You never see sales 50% off at your local gas station because, you know, there there's inelasticity there. Um, but because everybody needs gas, right? So they'll pay for it. Um, no, really, in theory, no matter how expensive it is, right? Um, you need it to get to work. Uh, but that's much different from things like clothes, um, where there's more kind of pricing power there for, for corporations. So I do think that we're going to start to see some of that, um, you know, those sales start to pass through if consumption does start to dwindle. Uh, thus far in the United States, we haven't seen that though. So, I mean, I, I do think that now we're really kind of looking at um, disinflation. I, I believe that that's where we're headed. So, um, you know, I think the Fed's job's done, but again, uh, they just focus so much on that PCE number um, I, I just think it's kind of blinded them to other factors of things going on within the economy. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, Powell has come out, I think, in the last like, couple of days and said, you know, inflation is stickier than they thought it would be. Although at the beginning of all this, you know, they were kind of saying inflation's transitory, like it's not going to last very long or whatever. Uh, but it seems like they're trying to get down to that 2% CPI target. And it's, uh, you know, obviously it's arbitrary or whatnot, but it seems like, you know, they're going to just continue to raise interest rates, but they're looking at backwards looking data. And in my opinion, it, it seems like they're not even really looking at some of the things that you're talking about, right? They're not really looking at the consumer. They're more looking at, you know, just overarching job numbers, which is, you know, just essentially survey based data and everything like that. So, you know, I, I guess... One, like, why do you think that the, the Fed is not, or do you think, one, that they're looking at this kind of data that you're pointing out, and two, like, if they are, or if they're not, like, why or why not? And if they are, like, why are they not seeing, like, come the, some of the things that you're pointing out, do you think? Take a take a leap into the mind of Jerome Powell for me, dear. Yeah, I, I just think it's because they got burned so bad on the transitory narrative. But I, I, I do believe that people over kind of transitory was overblown because if you open a, a, a dictionary um not to be you know like kind of semantics here but transitory doesn't have like a time limit it just means not permanent so i mean essentially anything that is not permanent is theoretically in the sense of the word transitory transitory um but people kind of gave the word transitory a time frame um so I, I think that that was a lot of the the issue was, you know, their old posturing being taken as, you know, a transitory will be, you know, six to six months to a year. Right. Um, and I think that that's how a lot of people interpreted it. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean, though, that that's what it is. Um, and so, you know, I think that when you're kind of looking at the Fed, that's how they're positioned now is we don't want to be burned again. We don't want to lose credibility. So we're just going to stick to our guns. 
But again, on the opposite end, that is going to have real effects that do start to make their way through the economy, um, where you could have the potential of slowing economic growth. Thus far, we haven't we haven't seen that, um, but you know that possibility still is there. So I just think in the mind of Jerome Powell, he's just so scared of you know backing off and inflation coming back. Um, but again, I would say that they've most likely uh, accomplished that task. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It just seems like, you know, because Powell has the Volcker mindset, right? Higher for longer and all that kind of the mantras that he's been putting out there. It just seems like he's not going to stop until, you know, that CPI number is, is at 2%. But in the meantime, it seems like there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, uh, you know, you alluded to it. You work in a banking industry and, uh, you know, obviously, there's been a plenty of problems in the banking industry in the United States. Um, you know, three, I think, of the, la- of the last either four or five largest bank failures happened within this past like six months period when uh, the Fed was raising interest rates. So, you know, what kind of strain do you think that this will, you know, I guess, put on the rest of the banking industry? Do you think, you know, well, maybe we'll see some more big players potentially fall? Or do you think, you know, as we're kind of going through this, that there's uh, you know, I guess uh, more room for, uh, I, I guess they're, they're more prepared in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I think somewhat um, they are more prepared. Um, so, I mean, I guess when we are looking at this, we need to first look at, you know, SVB, um, which was, I'm sure most people remember, kind of the first um, bank to really go under. And, you know, when we start to look at this, um, Silicon Valley Bank uh, invested deposits in long-term bonds um, and MBSs. Um, And they tried to do this to increase the yield um, and bank earnings at a time when rates were extremely low. Right. And the value of those bonds had a high level of sensitivity to interest rate increases. And so, you know, this led to capital markets um, um, freezing up and corporations issued very few bonds. And we also saw this exposure um, that, um, you know, that seems to be related to their um, their holding of fixed interest rate assets that are held, um, you know, available for sale or are or, or held to maturity. And, you know, what we essentially saw is that they had these two measurements, right? They had a measurement of HTM asset um, at cost does not make interest rate or, or like essentially they, they had this measurement um, where they they estimate the unrecognized pre-tax fair value loss of these assets um, in, um, you know, in I, I believe it was in the range of like 14 billion and about 89% of their reported equity due to the rise in interest rates, right? So once we start to kind of look through what happened, um, this was almost all related to bad um, mismatch, right? So they had something called economic value of equity, which they say is the value of assets less the market value of liabilities. Um, But within their modeling, uh, the market value um, of liabilities included the assumption that there were zero uh, to low interest rates and that deposited uh, deposits, sorry, themselves would remain relatively sticky. Um, and so, you know, those are obviously payable on demand. And so they were assuming that I, I believe it wouldn't go above, you know, 75 basis points. So when we kind of look at what happened with SVB, you know, this was all a function of interest rate risk. Um, because, you know, as yields move higher, the value of the bond moves lower. Um, and so essentially they were taking on these massive losses from that because all of these long-term and, and MBSs um, were very sensitive to changes in interest rates. And that's just kind of how they were modeling things out. So, you know, I, I do think that obviously there could be some more pain, but I, 
I mean, I don't, I think the kind of the worst of the worst is behind us, right? Because anybody who had significant risk, um, you know, your SVBs, um, you know, your FRCs, um, your PacWests, um, not that all of those failed, but the ones that really got some of which failed and the ones that got absolutely obliterated, I, I think is kind of, you know, that that aspect is is in the rearview mirror now, right? The the market kind of got um, sniffed out which ones would be able to survive and which ones wouldn't. Yeah, and I think you know to to that point as well is that there's not necessarily going to be like I mean at least it would be crazy, but I don't think there's going to be any more like seventy five or even fifty basis point hikes. I think you know if if uh, you know the Fed kind of continues to do this like pause, raise, pause, raise kind of cycle throughout the rest of the year, it's probably going to only be like maximum 25 basis point hikes uh, from here on out. And so because of that, I, I think like, you know, just the rapid pace, not only of what you outlined of Silicon Valley Bank and a lot of these banks that were, you know, essentially just mismanaged, I think the rapid movement of, of the rate hikes was also part of the reason why, you know, they got crushed and got crushed pretty quickly. Uh, it seemed like, you know, overnight, obviously, but it, it was, uh, you know, that and obviously the spread of information with people on like Twitter and so, some other social media apps that are saying like, hey, this bank's in trouble. Let's get our money out. So caused a, caused a bank run and everything else, too. So, um, you know, but you've alluded to it, right? I mean, like you, you know, you admitted that you thought like that they should have, uh, you know, turned in, um, you know, switched, switched up theoretically, um, you know, and I kind of started uh, the pivot at some point in time, you know, now, but it seems seemingly like they're not going to start until 2024. But what is that doing to, you know, the dollar markets? I know, I know you love your cross currency basis swaps and, and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, looking at the strength of the dollar, right? I mean, I was just in Canada, we already talked about it a little bit. But I mean, generally speaking, uh, the the Canadian, whatever, loony, toony, whatever you want to, whatever it is, is usually a little bit more than a dollar. But when I went up there, it was like, you know, one dollar is equal like, or I guess one loony is equal to like 75 cents, uh, theoretically. So, I mean, it, it, you can really tell the strength of the, the dollar when you, tr when you, uh, you know, cross the border. So, um, I guess, how is that strength of the dollar being affected with all these interest rate hikes uh, just globally to, you know, other fiat currencies, um, I guess, around the globe? Yeah, so obviously, I mean, what we're seeing is now people fleeing from domestic assets and other, you know, currencies um, to the United States. Um, and so if, if we actually are looking at what's happening People are trying to get a hold of dollars. Now, you know, to keep the cross-currency basis while very simple, for maybe listeners who don't know, it's just just think of it as a gauge of, of dollar demand. And so the more negative it gets, the more of a premium you have to pay to essentially be able to get dollars. Um, so you're paying the person lending you. Um, in very simplistic terms, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But, you know, the... so. You know, we do have a bit of a, a, the basis is still negative. So that's still in favor of a shortage of dollars. It has eased slightly, but nevertheless, it's still negative. So we are seeing, you know, demand for the dollar continue. I think that that's going to absolutely continue uh, into kind of the, the next couple of, you know, months or so, uh, just as a function of the fact that Thus far, the U.S. is kind of, you know, the cleanest uh, dirty shirt. If you look at Europe, you know, Europe, people are saying it's in the technical recession. Um, you know, you don't really want to put your money in, in, in Canada. Obviously, China's slowing. So when you start to look at other large kind of global players and, and you know, um, in like from a macroeconomic standpoint, a lot of these guys are slowing. And sure, you could make the argument that the U.S. is slowing, but not to the same capacity. So like, you know, um, this is going to hurt nations um, like, um, you know, like Germany more, um, like China more, um, nations that even though they are large exporters, um, whatever they do have to import from the U.S. is obviously going to rise in cost. But, you know, a lot of these nations slowing as well um, 
is a bit interesting because a lot of these nations are, are surplus produ uh, surplus producing nations. And so if they're slowing, um, you know, and we are going to start to see, let's say, less exports um, coming out of these countries, um, you know, some of their PMIs are starting to turn over, not in contraction yet. Germany is now starting to roll over. It's still in an expansion territory, but not by much. It's like two basis points, I believe, above um, above contraction. So we're not talking about a whole lot that's needed to kind of pull that into to contractionary territory. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think that the rest of the world is starting to slow. You know, if we look at the two-tens curve for the Bund, which is the German, um, the German bond, um, it's, you know, negative 79 basis points, which is, you know, the most inverted since um, kind of the uh, the 1990s. Um, so we're now seeing economic growth expectations roll over and become negative in Europe. Um, we're seeing, you know, the city economic surprise index become negative, uh, showing, you know, anticipation of slowing in Europe. But again, that's going to push a lot of money, uh, I believe, into the U.S., um, just because that's going to, one, be the only place that you can really get a positive real yield. I believe in the U.S., uh, real yields, and when I'm talking about real yields, I mean like an inflation break-even against a similar treasury, so like a five-year break-even versus a five-year treasury. That's how you calculate the real yield, not using CPI. I believe in the U.S., it's about 170-odd basis points. So even from that aspect, we do have the highest real yields uh, in the world. And I do just think that that's going to continue to be attractive um, for capital to continue to flow um, to us. Um, and I mean, I guess we, we can touch on BRICS next if, if you have any questions on that, because I was going to go there, but didn't want to throw too many things out at once. Yeah, no, let, let's dive into it, right? Because right, we got the status of BRICS. Um, they've either announced or kind of like alluded to them creating their own sort of it's like maybe it's a central bank digital currency, CBDC, some sort of digital crypto. Um, you know, there's even thrown out like, you know, certain countries have allowed trade in cryptocurrencies. Um, and it seems like they're they're trying to throw out that they can trade in essentially almost any other currency outside the dollar. Um, so, you know, I guess what is your thought on not only BRICS, but I guess like other countries now are starting to move away from from trading in the dollar. So, um, you know, although it seems like the dollar is strengthening against other crypt or uh, other uh, fiat currencies, like what is, I guess, uh, I guess, does, does it worry you that other you know countries are starting to not trade in the dollar? Or is it one of those cases where they, you know, trade in, I don't know, the yuan, for example, and then to just do an immediate exchange into the dollar. And it's just the trade was kind of done in a different currency, so to speak. Yes. Yeah, so, for one, um, it doesn't worry me. Um, and so I'll, I'll kind of go over some data here. Um, you know, if we look at the overall compensation um, or composition, sorry, of, of globally disclosed FX reserves on a quarter over quarter basis, the U.S. share of globally disclosed reserves was up about 47 basis points. And that accounts for about 58% of all disclosed FX reserves. Now, if we were to look at the renminbi, that accounts for 2.69. Now, obviously, if we look at the growth rate of the renminbi um, in terms of its overall increase um, in its makeup of globally disclosed FX reserves, um, you know, it has been remarkable. Um, you know, the, the rate of change has been, you know, very rapid. It's been more rapid than the pound. It's been more rapid than the franc. It's been more rapid than the yen. Um, but when people are looking at, like, rates of change, they have to remember it's coming off a very low base, right? So if you're talking, like, a 10% uh, change in, a, you know, 1% uh, relative to a 10% change in you know, um, uh, a thousand percent, uh, or, you know, it's, it's going to be much larger at a lower base than it is, um, from a much larger kind of composition. And that's, that's what we're seeing with the renminbi, right? The renminbi is about, uh, I, I think around 300 billion. Um, 
but uh, in a global market, um, the nominal figure of globally held FX reserves is 12 trillion. And so, you know, almost 60% of that is denominated um, in the US dollar. And so this kind of leads us to, you know, people talk about settlement. China will settle trade in yuan. Um, but there's a difference between settlement and invoicing, right? Um, so I guess first we should kind of touch on what is invoicing. Um, what it is, is it's kind of the, it, it postulates a dominant currency paradigm where export prices are set in a so-called vehicle currency. And so what that means is export prices are set in U.S. dollars. What they're settled in doesn't really matter. It's more how they're invoiced. And so um, really invoicing is only done in two currencies. It's done in the euro and it's done in the U.S. dollar. Um, and so... Um, you know, if we kind of look at the gap between export invoicing in dollars versus export destined for the United States, um, it shows the role that the U.S. has in global exports. Um, so what we really see is that, you know, global trade is more than just the petrodollar or commodities. And once you actually deduce exports out um, from both importing or from both invoicing and export shares, the dollar share of invoicing is 23% exceeds by a large gap, the share of exports, which are destined for the U.S., which is only 10%. And so one can already kind of see the role that the U.S. dollar has in, in global trade from that aspect. Um, and the euro in and of itself and in invoicing is more of a regional player. It's big in area, obviously Europe, it's big in Africa. Um, it's big in some areas in the Middle East. But when we start to look at these things, um, you know, one BRICS doesn't really have the ability to start invoicing because, you know, invoicing in and of itself, um, you, you get something called exchange rate pass through. And as, you know, X currency invoicing plays a bigger role in the pass through of exchange rate fluctuations to prices, thus, you know, higher X invoicing shares um massively increase pass through and so you know you can estimate that a hundred basis point increase in x currency invoicing share leads to 30 to 60 basis points increase in pass through and so the reason that this is significant is if you have a currency that's extremely volatile like you've seen in um south africa like you've seen in turkey uh, even right re uh, recently like you've seen with the yuan it actually leads to instability in global trade and it would actually slow uh exports um which would then you know overall slow global trade and so when i'm looking at like invoicing i don't care too much about settlement um because like i said you know um, trade has been settled in things other than dollars for a long period of time, it's more invoicing that's significant. And I'll, I'll, I'll end it here is if you actually look at nations that are invoicing in dollars, what is very interesting or who are settling in, in yuan, sorry, like Saudi Arabia, what's interesting is once they get those yuan, what do they do? They immediately go to the PBOC and they take back dollars. <laughs> Right. So they're like, here, you can have your, your wand back. We just want dollars. And so this is this is the thing. And oh, the, this is the last point, because this is also significant. Uh, China has capital controls. So even onshore, if you want to convert your yuan into dollars, there's um, a constraint on how much and how often you can do that. So this has actually led to offshore markets like cross currency basis swaps, like FX swaps. And so what's then happening is people are going offshore and, and we're seeing this. So like you're seeing outflows, uh, like capital outflows from China, but you're not seeing a decrease in effects reserves. And so that means everybody is taking those and they're swapping them from dollars in kind of the shadow banking sector uh, because they can't do it onshore because there's just too much restrictions on the amount 
of currency that they're able to convert. So all of that's happening offshore. So, you know, this is the thing. It's, it's you know, all of these nations, I, I posted on Twitter some more, uh, a couple of weeks back as well. If you took the aggregate of the BRICS nations, all like BRICS in aggregate is net long dollars. So they have, the, they're, they're, so this is how they're essentially positioned. It's not something that you'd see if they were, again, moving away uh, from a dollar-based system. All of these nations want dollars, and all of these nations are trying to get dollars through the shadow banking sector. So, again, I, I think BRICS is, is broadly overblown. Yeah, that's a that's a fair point, right? I mean, because at the end of the day, too, all those dollars, you know, are all those, uh, you know, currencies that they're using, whether they're, they're converting it back to dollars or anything like that, that's how they're valuing you know, the, the price of everything, right? They're not pricing anything that they're trading in, you know, yuan. They're kind of pricing it into uh, dollars, or at least that's, that's what it seems like to me. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like they're pricing things in dollars and then seeing the spread on whatever the currency that they're using. And then that's how they're pricing whatever they're trading. Is that is that correct or does that sound right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, everything's still priced in dollars. That's like kind of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, uh, although there's, I guess, more countries kind of trading in things outside of the dollar, it still seems like the dollar still reigns king. Um, but, you know, I, I know you said you're not worried about bricks or any of these other things, but it seems like this, maybe it's because I'm paying attention a little bit more now, but it seems like this is kind of happening a little bit more frequently than it has in, in past, uh, at least since the dollars become like the global reserve currency. Um, would you kind of, uh, I guess, agree with that point? Or uh, is, have we gone through something like this prior where countries have kind of, I guess, reverted from the dollar in trade uh, and kind of tried to move away from it? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's where it's hard because I know if you go back far enough, like you'll find um periods in like the 1980s where it's like headline kuwait says that they will stop trading in dollars right i think that that was one headline from the 1980s so like i mean this has been around um you know what now that you you actually gave me an idea for a chart is to go back and kind of pull data of how many times this has been said and just see how much if whether or not it's more frequent today than it was you know 50 years ago, 60 years ago, or if it's just the the ability of access of information, right? Where, you know, if, if you get on Twitter and you see, you know, the end of the dollar, um, the, you know, total kind of addressable market of people who are going to get that information is much larger than it was 60 years ago where it was more concentrated, right? Um, even if you're flipping through a paper, right? Like, you know, I remember my grandfather used to read papers and he'd like go to like the sports section, right? Like you're not going to read through the entire paper, right? You're going to go see, you know, how the Braves did or how the Tigers did or, you know, uh, something like that. You're, you're not going to read through every article. And a lot of times, you know, there's those tiny little articles in the very back of the paper that nobody, you know, really ever saw that were headline news, right? Like people usually read headline news and sports and that was about it. Whereas now you just have like this information overload. So it just might be more in your face than it was, um, you know, 30, 40 years ago. But I'm not sure if it's, if it's really a new argument. This seems that it's been something that's kind of been going on for for a long period of time. Yeah, I guess that, that, that it probably is the case, right? I mean, more people are paying attention. There's uh, you know, greater spread of information, right? I mean, that's kind of like, you know, it, I feel like it makes the things that, that are going on a little bit more dramatic. Um, but it also, I think in a sense, like can, can make things a little bit worse, right? Because, you know, it would normally take, I guess, like some time or maybe some communication between a couple countries to see, you know, hey, like, I don't know, Saudi Arabia, for example, is not going to trade in uh, dollars from now on, or they're not going to, you know, export in dollars. But, you know, normally, I feel like countries wouldn't figure that out until, you know, they're, they're trying to trade with Saudi Arabia or something like that, you know, maybe take some sort of public announcement where everybody would hear it first. But now it's like, if anybody says anything, 
it's immediately on Twitter or some other news source or something like that. So, I mean, I feel like even the spread of information from country to country is, is even quicker. So, you know, I think that that is kind of a good point that, that it plays a role, but I, yeah, I'd be curious to see that chart. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll let you, I'll put you to work for me here, dear, and uh, let you show me, uh, you know, you know, how, uh, you know, how many, how many countries have kind of moved away from the dollar and if that's kind of a, I guess, a common trend in years past. Um, but before I let you go here, I kind of want to get your last, uh, like, I, I guess, outlook for the rest of the year, because we've kind of talked about some some like rearward facing data. Like, you know, we've talked about the moves the Fed has made and, uh, you know, even the, the moves that the Canadian Fed, whatever it's called, has been has made uh, and kind of the effects of that. And, you know, why you think that the, they maybe should have pivoted or switched it up, um, you know, a little bit earlier. But I want you to call your shot here. Um, on at least the United States side, like, you know, do you think that we're going to get to, you know, I, I guess a pretty severe recession or even just, you know, a recession in itself? Do you think we're in one? Uh, do you think we're going to get to a depression? Like, how do you think this all ends up playing out? Sorry, couldn't get to the unmute button. Um, yeah. So do I think that the U.S. is in a recession now? Um, not yet. I, I do think that the U.S. is is somewhat slowing, um, but it's nothing that I would say that you know as of now one should be concerned about. I, you know, I think that there's a lot of kind of good that comes out of that, um, you know. But if we really want to avoid slow economic growth going forward. I think that we need to focus more on fiscal policy than monetary policy. Um, we need to focus on technological advancement. We need to focus on, you know, finding ways to increase productivity, increase output. The good thing is, you know, if we do get layoffs, I do believe that there is good to be had in that in the sense that high nominal wages, uh, in and of themselves are not inflationary. It's wages adjusted for productivity, which in economics is called unit labor costs. So if nominal wages grow at 5% and productivity grows at 5%, you don't have an issue. You have an issue if nominal wages grow at 5% and productivity is negative 5%, right? Um, so, you know, that's where we are today, where productivity is deeply negative. And so we're getting less output compared to where we were a year ago. But nominal wages are higher. So that means we're adding more workers um, to, you know, fixed factors of production, like, you know, plants, machinery, equipment, even in the service sector. If you go to a pizza restaurant, you can only have so many people in the back utilizing an oven. Uh, you can only have so many bartenders pouring beer before, like, you know, if you have a, a, a think of a bar, right? If you have a, just a normal bar, you know, maybe uh, if you have one bartender, you can serve 10 clients an hour, right? Um, and then if you had a second one, you can serve 20 clients an hour. And a third, you can serve 25 clients an hour. And a fourth, and so you get kind of like a parabola, right? So in the beginning, you get increasing um, kind of, you get uh, increasing returns from adding more bartenders. But then at a point, you get less, um, it's still increasing, but at a decreasing rate. And then finally, you're getting, you know, um, it's decreasing at an increasing rate. And I think that that's where, we're, where we are. We're adding more employees to things that are already fixed factors of production, um, just because we kind of have this issue of labor hoarding and therefore outputs actually declining because nobody's more productive. You're just adding more people, right? Like if 10 people are crowded around one fax machine, you're not going to get a whole lot of things faxed. Right. So, um, so I, I, I believe that that is where you could start to see that aspect like unit labor costs or, actual wage inflation start to come down as once we start to lay people off. I also believe that that will increase output. Um, but what we really need to start to focus on to kind of avoid all this again is fiscal policy where we're getting investment into the private sector 
um, and we're building out, um, you know, things that do lead to increases in productivity because long-term increases in technology and productivity lead to long-term increases in um, the standard of living. Uh, and so, you know, I know that that's a bit of a, a drawn out thing, but I, I do think that, yes, we could have some slowing in the U.S. economy. But thus far, I don't really see signs of a recession. I think that we could have a soft landing um, kind of coming into the the end of this year, beginning of, of next year. Um, so, you know, you're talking anywhere between three to four quarters. Um, so, you know, I, I think that that's where we could kind of see it. Yeah, and I, w- I wouldn't be surprised, too, if we, when we start to see a little bit more pain, um, you know, it's like the Fed is going to revert course a little bit later than than it, uh, than they should. I mean, in your opinion, they've already, you know, haven't done that. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, too, if it's, you know, they, it's seeming like they, they started raising too late. I wouldn't be surprised if they start pulling back too late. I mean, it's, it's human error in a sense, and they're looking at all backward-looking data, and it seems like it's not really – the most efficient uh, way to look at the data as well. So, um, but dear, my friend, uh, so uh, outside of, uh, you know, maybe Friday nights at the toy box or, uh, <laughs> or some other place, uh, maybe the loose moose or something like that, where, where can people find you and uh, what all do you got going on? Yeah. So it's, it's mostly on Twitter. Um, and then I, I do have my sub stack, which is also dear point macro. Um, so Substack and Twitter are really the two places to find me. Um, obviously, uh, outside the loose moose, um, you know, with the brewskis flowing, uh, sipping on a, on a nice IPA, especially now. It's good IPA season, by the way. It's just like a nice time to start cracking open IPAs. But yeah, yeah, those, those two places. Uh, or, or the streets of Toronto, uh, nothing east of Bay uh, like you dragged me to. Brendan literally just dragged me to the end of the earth when he was up here. And I was like, I have never gone this far east my entire life. So uh, thank you. Thank you for showing me the the other side of Toronto, even though you're not not even a Torontonian. Hey, but I mean, you got to give me some credit, dear. You can't just rip me apart on here in front, in front of my audience. I mean, like I... I am from, I live in Tampa, Florida. I got us into some random club that I'd never heard of before I got to Toronto for free when they were charging 50 bucks a head. I mean, come on, you got to give me some credit, man. I I do have to say he did. Um, But we also have to mention we had like a 45 minute walk and I was wearing cowboy boots. That is true. It was, it was a, it was a long walk from where we were at, but I had no idea. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it was fun. I, I mean, we saw interesting things. We saw like a, a party in an alley that was a mosh pit. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, so. Yeah, we saw that. We saw a couple of homeless people. I mean, we saw some stuff. I mean, I got the full tour of Toronto while I was up there, man. Yeah, you you did. You did really get the tour. So, I mean, I, I do have to say, you know, at least we got uh, the, the full experience. We, we had delicious pizza. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. and, and pasta. So, you know, there, there was good aspects of it, but yeah. Yeah. So that's where, uh, where most people can kind of, uh, can kind of find me. Um, the, uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you should definitely come up again. Uh, I mean, I'll be going down to South Carolina in September. Maybe I'll try to make a, a stop by Tampa. We can. Uh, yeah, man. You're always welcome down here. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll i probably make it up. Maybe I'll come back uh, if they have the Canadian Bitcoin conference again in uh, Toronto or something. I don't know. Maybe I'll make another trip up or maybe uh, to New York or something. You can come down and it's a little easier that way. Um, but yeah, if you guys aren't following Deerpoint on Twitter, follow him, Deerpoint Macro. He's all over spaces too. He's always sharing his knowledge. So uh, great follow and then check out his Substack, of course, man. I mean, this guy, he's pumping out all this stuff all the time, great um, charts and great, you know, breakdown and analysis. Obviously, you guys just heard it all. So, dear point, thanks so much, my friend. I'll no, catch you at the loose moose, man. Yeah, thanks, friend. I'll see you there.